So welcome back to Don't Slam Your Podcast. I'm as ever your 2.4 host, JD Collins. And today we're back on the second part of a new 2.4 discussion. So last week we looked at the horizontals, which is about the various stories from that happened to the Porter family in a specific series throughout. And then now we're looking at the elements of 2.4 children that would go from series to series to keep the show familiar, but always with that, that fresh look. Joining me to discuss this is the guest from last week's show. It's the return of Thomas. Thomas, how have you been? I've been good, thanks. How about you? Yep, really well, thank you. Um, I believe you're going to be making Christmas puddings after this. Yes, so I very likely will put on the various 2.4 Christmas specials to while away the absurd amount of time that these things actually take because yeah they were devised in an era when we had housewives <laughs> yes <laughs> well i hope that goes well and hopefully it won't be too long uh doing this now so you can get on with the, the pudding later on um and that'll be me that'll be just because of me waffling so i'll rein it in <laughs> oh don't so- worry so, so with the vertical ep- uh, plot lines, um, these were, as I say, elements that were not necessarily every episode, but would return from series to series in order to get that familiarity. So with the first one I was going to discuss, I think it's a bit of a crossover between the horizontal and vertical concepts, and that is looking at Bill and Rona's developing catering career. So as I said last week, like Although Andrew Marshall had come up with this concept in the beginning of series three in order to keep the show running for many years, the seeds were planted in the first two series. So with the first two series, you have Bill and Rona starting off in a bakery. That's just their day job. Then they leave that at the end of the first series and go into series two, initially unemployed, but then having to work at the airline meals factory, which I think is a very fascinating type of job. Not a nice one, but just fascinating. You always wonder who makes the meals on on airplanes. And then it's almost their moment of of learning what it is they really want to to do. And that propels them forward. What's your take on on the catering career storyline that goes from series to series? I mean, I think it's a well done storyline because it does reflect a lot of what was societally going on at the time. You know, as women increasingly became more prominent in the workforce a lot of women who had previously just had sort of the light jobs that you could fit in with the school run like working a few hours in a shop which was a kind of very stereotypical thing and then it's moving on from that and realizing that oh actually she's entitled to a career in her own right which is a change society was having at the time the idea of the career woman was no longer necessarily a single woman A married woman was considered by society as somebody who could potentially have a career. And equally, a lot of women who were starting careers at that time were in sectors that still were traditionally seen as a bit more feminine, you know, food, education, that kind of thing. But the idea that they were entitled to a proper career very much was coming in. I mean, don't forget, When Bill was a child, you know, it was still the era when a woman could be dismissed from certain jobs if she got married. You know, I'm I'm very conscious that few things have so significantly changed in society than the notions towards women at work. Now it's not really in most sectors even a thing to think about. You know, candidates are viewed for most jobs equally, regardless of gender, whereas 
at that time, we were getting there, but we weren't quite there yet. It's past the days where men and women got different pay. I mean, that's still a pay gap thing. It's, mm. It was probably still going on then, but I th- I'm, I'm assuming by the 90s, it was less overt in job descriptions, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, the Equal Pay Act, if I'm remembering rightly, came in just before the series. But certainly when the reason a lot of the pay gap was so different was because, and this is still a lingering problem, that women were still expected to do all the housework. And Bill does very much fulfill that traditional housewife role as well as working. Yes. And in series four, when she's turning the house into the base of her business and you know when they're trapped by the snake she is commenting that the house started as a place to raise a family and now it's a cottage industry and she's reflecting on that as a bad thing rather than you know nowadays we would call that you know starting your own business and be far more positive about it almost like time starts at home yeah i mean you know these days, some of the biggest companies proudly advertise that, you know, they started somebody's garage or shed or whatever. And at this time, it was still this idea that home should be a little sacred palace to domesticity and that having work at home was still a bit not really the damn thing, which I think finally bitter death in COVID when we had no choice and most of us had to work from home, whether we liked it or not. And it's been interesting because obviously to watch the final death of that and then look back on where we were. And you do realise that a lot of the attitudes of the time that we just accepted were actually quite terrible. This idea that the family kitchen should be where a mother is a mother. And, you know, it's she's brought work into the house and it's still those very traditional attitudes. And now when you watch it back, you're like, yeah, but good for you. You're doing the thing. Like, yeah. well done. And yeah, the thing as well is it's they are nearing middle age. I mean, Bill more so probably than Rona. I think she's a little bit older than, than Rona in the series. And yet Bill has also teenagers, so they are nearing adulthood. So she's probably seeing the future of kids are going to be leaving the nest and she's got some, to find something else to do. And it's quite inspiring. I mean, I say this many times with 2.4. It really was very ahead of its time and, and and not given the credit for it. I mean, say I don't like to go too much into sort of social things in from from like a you know, women's roles, men's roles, because I think it's quite done in discussion. But I think that there is definitely a lot to be said about how Bill and Rona start their own business and achieve it. They don't they're never massively successful with it. Um, but they are they 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 run a business and they and they make they're they're able to to do it. And every series has something that's very specific about the business. So you've got series three, their decision, they go do their first job. They look at the kitchen um, at the potential. That's a good foreshadow for what's coming in series four. Series four, the, the, the kitchen's being done. Series five, obviously burnt down at the end of series four. Then series five, they go and look for somewhere else. And then series six, they find it. And then the rest of the series is just them doing the job. Yeah. And one of the things that I quite like is that the scene with when Rona suggests the idea to Bill and she says, you've done it at home and work all your life. And it is very typical, actually, of conversations at the time where it was pointed out that actually, if you were capable of running a household, 
you actually did have a set of skills that were transferable to outside workplaces. You were not just a housewife. And it's interesting that it's Rona deliberately giving Bill a push. And, you know, while she is initially, you can see she, she thinks about it in that scene. I think it's a very important scene to their character development because Bill is, they're obviously partners, but the dynamic is Bill is in charge. Yes. And yeah, it is Rona who actually starts the business with that initial push, which I think is a lovely twist on what could have, in different hands, this would have been a very trite storyline. And, but actually it plays as quite real and practical and it is based in the real world. You know, they do have actual problems with their business. Yeah, it's it's not something that happens overnight. As you say, another sitcom would have had that happen within a series. This was done that really it took them five series to get there. And with Bill and Rona, I I think one of the things I love about their, their relationship, I agree with you, Bill's very much in charge, but I think Rona, because she's the more free one than Bill, who's a bit more, well, she's more settled down. I think Rona has that kind of free free mind set where she can take more risks. Bill's more tied down. And she probably needs that push. I mean, Rona is probably the worst influence because she's the one who's always saying to her, oh, no, let's do this. Let's just put this Shirley Bassey dress on. It's only take about 10 minutes. It won't take long. She's a bad influence. But you're right, she does push it. And then I think what's really interesting, in Fortuosity, when Bill has the dream about the chain letters and there's that one scene with Rona where they have the argument, and Bill says, you know, about it being like a prison. It's a different it's a diff, a prison with different cells or something like that. It's interesting because it's in a nightmare that she's thinking that, that clearly she's not 100% sure that you're going to her psyche a little bit. She's still got that what if, what if. And she says, you know, we're, we're less free than we were when we just went to work. There is that. And it's not just the actual business that's developed well. It's the emotional human aspect and the insecurity of doing such a, of taking on such a, a, a task. Well, exactly. It is a lot harder to run your own business than to be an employee in most circumstances. There are exceptions, of course. But particularly when you consider she's never got, you know, oodles of cash behind her. You know, she's not the rich woman whose husband bought her a shop because she was bored. This isn't that storyline. No. Instead, she needs this to work both in terms of her own professional development, in terms of her identity as a person, but also they do need the money. And that beca- that is always a recurring theme through the series. And it's one of the more interesting plot points to me in terms of sort of st- just adding a sprinkle of less realism that the way they get the money to start the business is the lottery, which... Mm. At that time, when it was new, it perhaps didn't have the same feeling of unreality. Mm. Whereas now, of course, and also the lottery stories have been done to death in the years since. Yeah. You know, there was um, ITV did at home with the Braithwaite's. There's been the syndicate. Yeah. You know, the idea has literally been overdone. But when it first came in, which is when that episode aired, it was... Something I think probably more people were willing to consider might happen to them, particularly, you know, at that time, the slogan was it might be you, you know, 
it's interesting. It's almost an advert for the lottery on the BBC, which, yep, that that's interesting. But it also, it's one of a couple of episodes where it does very much put something that was both topical but also a commercial product front and centre. The other one I'm thinking of is the Trip to France episode that is, you know, incredibly heavily based on the quickness and convenience of the Channel Tunnel. Yeah. And the thing I think with the lottery is it was ahead of its time in the way it well, Andrew was thinking a lot of, prof, sort of prophecy, prophesizing the problems that the lottery brings, but also that idea of, of, I never understood why Bill says I only won a little bit of it until I did the episode and I had to ask into how the lottery works in terms of why is it that some people, if people all get the right number, they've got to share it. So that would have been a lot of people. I can't imagine she won upon lots of money. I don't think she'd have got thousands, hundreds of thousands. She probably only won a little bit, like maybe a couple of thousand. But it is that kind of element, the idea that so many people chose the same numbers hmm. at any given time. And equally, it was, you know, if you got three numbers, you've got like a tenner, I think it is. If you get four numbers, you get a f- share of the pot. And at that time, this also is a reminder of just how much inflation has truly ruined things in the years since like realistically bill probably wins somewhere between five and ten thousand which is enough to start a business or to give rona the deposit she needs for a mortgage oh it was a simpler time (laughs) yes oh god yeah i always i see that bit now and i think wow that that's uh not the same that wouldn't happen now but the thing about I like about the cratering role as storyline later series is when they do get finally um, find a, a place to work and settle as a, as a cooking venue is that you just see them get on with their job and that they, they just say, all right, I need to go to the, to do some food in the evening or, you know, they're, they're able to really get a vibe that they're, they're not, it's not nine to five. They have to sometimes do because they have weekend things to do as well. And I think the episodes, two of them realise that the final series, there's two storylines that are based around the catering business. There's Sticky Fingers with the floor. Um, they're doing the doing up the floor, and that's when they get high off the fumes and off the glue. And then in After the Fox, as you mentioned just before, they go to the Channel Tunnel to do a white van job to get booze from France in order to get a um, a good deal because they their business could potentially you know, struggle and I like that idea that you, they never, they would never um, really be a, a huge business, but they'll always have peaks and troughs and, you know, see, see where they go. Yeah, it's very true to the realities of being a small business is that you will at some point go to the bank and be told to bugger off. You will at some point, you know, be in a situation where there's a ton of money that's going to come in just after when I would like it, you know, in the Christmas episode where they're talking about not having Christmas. And similarly, you've got, you know, the reality that sometimes actually, yes, you would like to always act in business in a certain way, but occasionally competition means you have to do something that if you're being honest, you'd rather not do, but it makes good business sense like with the channel tunnel thing. And also the realities of when you are a small business, there is a lot of stuff that you have to do, you know, sorting out the floor, finding property, et cetera, which they're not experts in. 
and yet they just kind of have to muddle through and you see all the various mishaps that inform quite a few jokes and even when they finally find the lockup you have the joke of it's right next to a railway line with the mail pickup next to it yeah and you know it does kind of reflect and anyone who's done setting up a small business will know the hunt for premises is incredibly stressful you're out of your depth because you're not really a business person you're a person who has something that will make a good business and it is also worth noting a lot of people do get ripped off in that yeah. stage of setting up a business except for bill and murray because the guy gives them a reduction when he loses his toupee from... yes uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that gave a lot of people hope <laughs> Yes, it's very interesting that the mail train saved the day just at the time when they were being axed from the railway network. Yeah, yeah, it just it's a it's a really great storyline, and I and it's a very it's also a very unglamorous job in a way, which I think makes it more interesting. It, and it is very um, it should give confidence to a lot of people watching it, thinking, well, they can do it, I can do it. Uh, I don't think there's any other sitcom. And it's got the same kind of specific idea in terms of what you need to do. Because I feel like, you you know, every element of planning is incorporated into the story. Obviously, they're not always main plot points, but just the dialogue between Bill and Mona is very realistic. It is beautifully observed at times. So, like, when you have the scenes in the airline meals factory, it is correct. Yeah. So, like, they are wearing the kind of health and safety stuff you do have to wear in those jobs, you know, hairnets and white coats. And it really does reflect the utterly unglamorous and miserable life that actually a lot of these jobs that need doing are. And the people who are doing them, that's not, you know, some people, their work is fulfilling and wonderful. And then you have the millions of people for whom their work is a thing to be endured. And I think in series two, they perfectly capture what a lot of people have done, which is where you've taken a bad job because you needed the money and it sucked. It was grim. And if it wasn't for the fact you could occasionally have a laugh with a mate, you would literally have packed it in on the second day. Yeah, that's it. I completely agree. And then that source gives them the the uh, kickstarter to, to go with the business. Because at mm. least they know what the alternative is. So we go on to the Grimes now, who were a very interesting pair of characters for to make up the pe- the Porter's neighbours, next door neighbours. And I think it's interesting that we only see Mrs. Grimes in sort of behind the bushes in the first series. Uh, you know, and then you meet Rufus, the farty, the dog. And then it all, I think almost the Grimes the disasters and the animals thing are kind of intertwined with the death of Farty, Rufus, when the porters have to look after him and he then becomes unwell. And what I think is really interesting about this first sort of venture into animal deaths on 2.4 is that it's not a, a kind of, um, what's the word, spectacular death. It's quite a normal thing that happens, that animals get ill the owners have gone away, so Bill has to do something because the, the poor animal in, in, is in pain and the uh, and the option is to put him to sleep by a vet. And I think it's it's quite a it's it's done very well because you have to almost explain to David what's happened, and it's that idea, like a lot of the viewers, especially children who have pets, knowing that they'll die one day. But then there's that idea of Ben saying, you know, your your mum is a dog murderer. So there's the dark humor in it as well. Um, but then of course that 
really puts a, a dent in the relationship between the Porters and the Grimes. What do you think of the Grimes? I mean, they are very... They are so well-drawn as a, of a certain type of person. Um, it's like Jenny at one point refers to their house as Nafland, and I think there is a certain type of... It's a working-class family that has got enough money that they can buy anything they want and do whatever they want. You know, they're off on holiday to Switzerland and what have you. And their taste is exceedingly garish and vulgar. But they're happy. They are extremely content in their little world. And yes, their life is not fashionable. It is not up to date, but they are thoroughly enjoying life most of the time. Whenever you see them, they're doing fun things that they enjoy. Yes. You know, they are clearly a bit annoyed every time they have to interact with their neighbours who are like, not them. They're not... Re it's a convenience relationship, realistically. Being nice to your neighbours because, yeah, they'll look after the dog is a very normal thing. But equally, it also reflects the fact that very often your neighbours aren't people like you. With all the awkwardnesses that that entails. So with the dog dying, yeah, that is absolutely a thing that happens. And if they were more similar families, that conversation would be so much easier yes. than it is when it is Bill talking to Mrs Grimes because it is just fundamentally more awkward. And then, of course, it becomes the running trope of they keep getting rid of the Grimes' pets one way or the other. Um, so, like, by the time you get to the episode with the fish and she's just reeling off this list of ways they have killed various animals, and she yells at Ben, why have you done this? Oh, I love Bill's um, sort of anger towards Ben in that episode because you really feel this frustration that she that he's done this again. Exactly. And equally, you do kind of wonder, how do the Grimes not know anyone else to ask? Like, yeah. There are neighbours on the other side. How much have they offended them? But equally in the first series, you know, there are comments that they are a certain type of neighbour that if they think something is wrong with your house, they will tell you. Yes. Which few things are more grim to live next door to than a neighbour who's like, your garden needs some work. Like, uh, most of the time, let's face it, English people would not say that. We would just tut and grumble. Um, I have known situations where people would rather ring the local councillor and ask if anything can be done than talk to their neighbour directly. Yeah. Um, it is very much a case of we don't like to do that. So for somebody to say things instantly marks them out as not quite obeying the rules of society. Yeah. Just a little too forward, a little too pushy, a little too rude. Yeah, and that's the balance I like with the with the Grimes. It, 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 some of their appearances is something to do with them overseeing something, and then sometimes it's with the animals. So, for example, with the family plot, which we looked at, that you yeah. see her looking outside the window. She's like, Leonard, she's hanging a dog, but the other one's topped her just in time. You know, there's that kind of... She's that nosy neighbour. 
And then when Ben goes through their ceiling into their room, it's it's just a really funny way of knowing how houses work and knowing that he actually got through to them rather than back to his own house. Uh, and it just, it, it really makes the awkwardness more palpable. And then with greed, you hear, she looks at, she her ears outside um, the, I think they're playing Brotherhood of Man. Bill's playing them to, to annoy Jenny and David. And then when in trouble with Harry, when they eventually get a dog and Bill pretends that they've got the invisible dog, Mrs. Grimes sees her and just is very confused. So that's the observations I like. But yeah, the, the it's when they are, I think, main parts of the plot that I find it's the most amusing. So when the children are asleep, that the whole episode thinking that they are stuck in their house, tied up, and then it turns out they have been the whole time and heard awful things and they've been so close to being rescued and then they've not been. It, it's just, it's very cruel. It is very cruel, but also if you've ever had neighbours like that, there is definitely that part of your brain that kind of wished that on them. Yes. Because Mrs Grimes is the sort of woman I can imagine saying things like, just popping off to polish the pews at church. I've done all mine. Yes. You know, she is she is usually very neatly made up. You know, she is a woman who cares about appearances. Yeah. You can see that every time she's on screen. Her perm has been done. She is wearing a suitable outfit for whatever she's doing and she is very typical of a type of woman of that generation they are now vanishing rapidly but at that time they were still a ubiquitous character like if you had the grave misfortune as a boy to go into a lady's hairdressers in the 90s there would be the bunch of women who had the same appointment every week and all came in to have their perms done and they would all sit and gossip viciously. And you just know that's what Mrs. Grimes does once a week. And you know part of it is her dreadful neighbours. I mean, you can't believe. Well, you remember that time when we were tied up and they left us for hours. And she would still be telling that story 10 years later. Oh, yeah. On a weekly basis. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's not even their fault half the time uh, it's you do i do feel for them sometimes the grimes but they are also very t- well she's particularly very tactless and uh, the, and then the porters are just very clueless as well and then you have curiosity kills the cat which is i think the second time we have the well not the second animal death in the series but this other second animal situation but obviously they look after the cat and he gets stuck under the floorboard after ben's chased after the wrong cat all that time and and i like the the comeback of that in you only live twice when she mentions that the cat's still in the airing cupboard and then when bill's like and the cat i heard the cat wheeze on your towels um very vicious comeback there i love it but then this that is what you said as well about uh, making comments about when she says oh well the fire didn't come through to ours just a little little bit of scratching or something like she says that and it's uh and then the way she's so polite about telling them that they can't stay with them. You know, Leonard cannot stand sound. To this day, he has to wear a balaclava on Guy Fawkes night. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's one of the beautifully well-drawn characters, but also not the greatest person, let's be honest. And whenever her appearances come in, there are always some... She does represent that type of woman who 
will be saying things that sound terribly nice. And then you actually listen to what they're saying and you're like, wow, you're a bit of a bitch, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, so like one of my favorite examples of that is when Rona is running the distraction and has got the Grimeses over at her house. And she, Rona eventually says, I've just remembered the key to the handcuffs is in the bedroom. And Mrs. Grimes just goes, I'm not at all surprised in such a vicious tone. Yeah. Like she never expresses anger, but she expresses a very catty bitterness that actually is a part of characters of that type. And you know, she's not the only example you see on television. It goes right back to sort of Ina Sharples on Coronation Street level of it's that stock working class woman who considers herself a cut above the neighbours and feels it is her duty to try and bring standards up. Yes, definitely. And I think she's so well drawn in the cat in the way it's she's, she speaks and it's not like she's just it did it, it, they play the characters well enough as say sometimes she appears in like one scene sometimes she appears and all the, the grimes are a big part of the whole episode and i think it, it feels right that the deep is kind of the last grime centered episode because of the way it's structured it's that idea that suddenly they realize they've meant to be looking after the house and they have no they've not looked at it they don't know what's in there and I love the build-up to the reveal of the fish, that sort of eerie music, and then Bill just walking past the um, the, the birdhouse when she shuts it so casually. It's so beautifully done because you know where, where it comes back to you later. And then she just walks away from the pond and then she just looks at me and goes, oh, no. And it's just the way that they try and get the fish sorted and, you know, trying to find the people who can has that tropical fish. And then at the end, the fish have been dead all along. It's the birds. It's just, it's a perfect way, I think, to have an a, a one A storyline. Because in, in Curiosity Kill the Cat, the cat is really the B storyline. Whereas in The Deep, it's the whole episode. And it's just so beautifully sort of structured. And, and it builds and builds and builds up. And then you just think the whole thing was a waste of time. Wonderful. Yeah. And equally, I think it is... At that point, the Grimes is, I feel like, if they've not learnt their lesson, it is entirely on them. Yeah. I'm sorry. They have literally done so much damage to your house. Like, at this point, if you ever leave it in the care of the porters again, it's entirely on you. Yeah, They exactly. can do nothing wrong because you know what they like, you know what keeps happening, if you're going to keep asking them and... Presumably they do go away and get somebody else to look after the house in yep. the future. But by that point, it was very much a case of, you should have seen that coming. You should have actually left written instructions. Like the fact that they keep setting the porters up to fail. You know, like if you knew your dog was sick, you would warn your neighbor before you got them to look after it. Equally, if your cat has a tendency to get itself into awkward places, you would warn the person looking after it. Like they never do the sensible thing. No. And it's on them. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think what I enjoy about that element is that it's their their whole existence is just to see to sort of 
be the victim to the porter's catastrophes. And yet then they, I feel that, I mean, I don't know exactly why they didn't come back series seven, eight. I know that she was meant to come back in the episode fame. Um, but when I saw on the script at the written archives that she was due to appear and then something happened and then it had to be cut. So she would have been it. And then I think, you know, in the series eight um, sort of illustrated opening credits, they have something unique in every episode. And in this, the first one, it's Mrs. Grimes peeing out of the window. So maybe that's probably something to what she did in the episode. But by then, they're just sort of there. And, you know, who who knows what uh, what, what other things happen in the world of 244 John that we don't get to see. But it's a wonderful way of knowing that for the audience, when a new Mrs. when they appear, you know it's going to be carnage. Oh, 100%. And also... I think the other thing is, as time goes on, I think perhaps this is just that my life weirdly paralleled 2.4 children, or maybe this is a thing that was going on more. We did start to talk less to our neighbours yeah, as time went on, because there was more to do in the house. Yeah. You know, in the days when if there was nothing good on the telly, you might go do the garden. Yeah did kind of tail off and i think nowadays there are very few comparatively examples of like say elizabeth and hyacinth in keeping up appearances yes. of neighbors who force themselves to be friends whether they like it or not yeah i think you're that right things change has, that has drifted away and now i mean certainly on the street i live in i know a couple of the neighbors dimly most of them I could be sat opposite them on the tube for half an hour and I would not know they were my neighbour. And I don't think that is just a unique London is deeply unsociable thing. I think even in the countryside, you know, people do talk to their neighbours less now because you've got other options. Yeah, yeah, I think think there's also the realisation just because you live in a certain community, certain group doesn't mean... You have to be friends. You might be very different people, and that's okay. And then the animals in two point four are don't are always used brilliantly. Not always to die, uh, but just for funny decoration. So you have in Babes in the Wood when the they use the the, the little white dogs and then they hang them on on the Christmas tree, or when it um, hangs on the um, it gets caught in the fish um, rope. What's it called? Fishing line. Fishing line. Sorry, I went there, had a brain, bit of brain fog there. Fishing line. And, uh, and you know, it just all these things happen to animals, which are really funny. But I think my favourite one is probably um, the goldfish in Badger's Bend. Because it's just so beautifully done. The idea of you see how, how it ends in the series and then they do this sort of spoof third, first, fourth wall breakdown. So how it's and how what happens in real life? It's just so nice to see something like that in a sitcom, and and know they were doing it to kind of as a genuine message to the audience that animals aren't harmed, but with a bit of a, a joke as well. Yeah, that's it. Then that coda is played so well because you could just play it completely straight, and it would just be really grim and weird. Whereas instead, they use it as an opportunity to make a another joke, which. The joke plays well, but it only plays well because they broke the fourth wall in the way they did. And it is a really nice touch, I think, that they just 
add in this little extra at the end of the episode. But I mean, one of my favorite examples of animals is the lobsters yes. in series two. And just when you think they are done with them, one appears out of Bill's handbag in the school, which is just so ridiculous. And yet also, I think f- I can't be the only person that was the first time they'd ever seen an uncooked lobster. Like, yeah. you're like, wow, those things look even more bizarre alive than dead. They yes. are almost like bizarre alien creatures. And you're like, wow, we must have been really hungry at one point that we went, let's eat that. Um, and also the fact that later on, some of the times they use animals, it is very much done with an eye to real life, like with Harry, because boy, has every family had that, can we get a dog argument? Okay. Whereas on the other extreme, you have like Porky's where realistically even in deepest darkest suffolk it is deeply unlikely there would be a winnie baby piglet raffle but it is funny that they do that and it is still just believable enough for the plot to work and after the fox it's this idea i think it's the idea of smuggling something into the you know i like that idea of accidentally smuggling something from another country and the obvious thing is drugs you know, it's always going to be something. It is as as was the case with two point four children. It's always got to be something a bit more left field. And another example is um, David when he has the the chocolate uh, box full of cockroaches. Oh, the cockroaches! Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that the fact that he put them in the freezer and they freeze and become um, uh, cryogenically frozen almost, and then they come alive after being in the heat for a few hours. I mean. It's just it's because it, you think he's drug dealing. The whole thing is you think he's drug dealing, and it's the idea of the, it's always a two point four s twist, and it seems to be animals that seem to be the twist. Yeah, and I the cockroaches one. There is literally nothing worse in that scenario than a box that looks like chocolates that is actually full of cockroaches. It is so much worse yes. than. You know, realistically, if you opened a box of chocolates and it was full of cocaine, you could say, oh, my God, I can't believe that corner shop. You know, there is a way of coming back from that in front of a policeman. It's awkward and he's never quite going to believe you. But there is a slight exit avenue open to you. Box full of live cockroaches. There's no coming back from that. Like the fact that it's later on reference that, you know, they did bring a box of live cockroaches to Jenny's first proper boyfriend. And it's just like, yeah, I would just hide from them forever. Like, genuinely, if that relationship had ended in a marriage, I would completely understand Bill and Ben being like, "Um, so we've been admitted to hospital on the day of your wedding because it's less awkward. Yes. Yeah, it's it's just such bad luck and bad timing. And I just like the fact that he took chocolate box out of a freezer to make it cold, but then thinking, well, we'll use it for later. It's an interesting idea. Uh, and then not realizing that there's cockroaches in it. And then you got after the fox as well. And so they're smuggling it in and could catch rate, could give people rabies. And But they do the moral thing and take it back through the channel tunnel to release it into France again. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. And there is something, the whole thing, again, it's one of those very of its time plots. Like, I can remember the big row when they were talking about possibly banning fox hunting. And, like, it was very much a thing that there were stickers absolutely everywhere. Like, I, I can remember on every road sign in the countryside, there were these ones that said, fight prejudice, fight the ban, that kind of thing. It was a very big issue at the time. Yeah. And so they play on it really well, because rather than have an episode about fox hunting, it is instead a fox hunt of a very different kind. And it is much funnier than anything else would have been realistically. But also the fact that it is all born of mischance and stupidity. Rona not knowing the difference between a fox and a foxhound is a very Rona moment. But then the fact that it gets into the van, yeah, that is the kind of thing that might happen if you're really unlucky. And then the fact that they managed to get it back through the tunnel and it is only on the third trip that the van is inspected and it's full of sheep. That is just the best end to that episode you could have had, I think, because the fox being there again would not have been funny. That would have just been crushing. You're like, they went through all that and the Flamin Fox followed them again. Sheep, nobody was expecting that. No, no. Perfect and, joke. And the fact that they go into a field, probably sheep are quite quiet. They could have snuck into the van. You know, it's every bit that could have happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, sheep, if they're not talking to each other, they are an incredibly quiet animal and they don't make a lot of noise. Their hooves are quite soft. It's if you think about it hard, actually, could that happen? Yes, it could. It is a thing that might happen. And equally, if they were all at the back of the van eating whatever, and Bill just doesn't bother to look and slams the door, yeah, you genuinely could end up in that ridiculously horrifying and awkward scenario. Well, look what happened with the bird um, house. Mm. She shows it without seeing, without the bird being in there. Knowing the checking, she's she's very careful, but a bit 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 careless as well. Yeah, and I think it's another of those well drawn from life things. We all do little things like that. Yeah, that most of the time it's never going to be a problem, but just occasionally it's really going to bite you. Yeah, you know how many of us have left the house without checking we've got our keys? Nine times out of ten, they're in your bag or your pocket or your hand occasionally. Yes. <laughs> But every so often, you will have got through a day and you get home and you're like, I've left my key in the house. Yeah. You know, everyone's done that at least once. 100%, definitely. And as you say, that everyone's had the, can we have a dog conversation? And now I do love about the trouble with Harry is that it's done in a very 2.4-esque way. This idea that to prove to Bill that they can do it, they have to have a pretend invisible dog. And I do like the fact that she uses the examples before. It's like, what about the Grimes' dog and the Grimes' cat and the Grimes' fish? And she's just really railing off the list of all these disasters. Oh, and I think in one early episode, we learned that there was an incident with a David and a gerbil up a vacuum. 
think everyone's yes. got a gerbil story. But I just think they played the trouble with Harry really well. And then this idea that they all gone so mad with it that they all bring a Harry back with them. It's just very nicely done. It's a bit bonkers. Probably the most bonkers episode of the show, but it has, you know, takes an idea that's been done many times of a family getting a dog and gives it a bit of a twist. Yeah. And I think also it's enough of a twist that you can very much say, yes, this is a 2.4 episode. But also when they are doing the Harry experiment, is that the kind of idea that kids would have? Yes, it is. In fact, I may even have suggested something similar to my parents at one point. I feel like that is a thing child me would have done. So even if I... No, actually, I'm pretty sure we did suggest it. And our parents were just like, nope, not playing that game. Absolutely not. And But of course, the porters will try it. Whereas of course, Ben suggests it. Mm. But again, you know, the point for child being the husband thing. It is so neatly done and also the fact that the ending is what it is of that episode where you have bill going have i actually cracked because i can see a dog and she's like got rona over going can can you see this dog am i going completely mad and rona's going i can see it as well well you always were a bit funny you know it's beautifully done and then the fact that actually all of them have somehow acquired dogs. One genuinely hopes that none of them actually had a guide dog, because, of course, that is the sort of breed they use for that. Yes. Which, yeah, there's just the moment when the blind guy has left with the dog, and then they realise it's not a guide dog at all. Yes. (laughs) And it's just the horror like you would feel like the worst person on earth yeah and you were already feeling pretty bad because you thought you'd stolen a guide dog and somehow you've reached a new low that is worse than that and i like when ben sees him when they he has the, the collision with the van and then he sort of says yeah you should be sorry and then suddenly he sees it and he's like oh i shouldn't have shouted then because he recognizes that the guy's blind and it's actually a guide dog yeah it's it's, it's such a it plays the animal idea never with any kind of familiarity or you know formula formulaic in, in any way and just you know the whole thing is really funny because in a way i think people always remember oh it's the family sitcom where they always kill the neighbor's pets but actually there's loads of different animals from different things that are coming in and even in series one uh david sneaks in the rat to auntie tina's house mm. which he's had all the time which i think is really funny so we go on to uh, Bet and Aunt Belle, Ron, uh, Bill's mum and auntie, and of course played by the brilliant Liz Smith. She was in it from the beginning, from series one, episode four, and then appeared a couple of times in series two, including the Christmas special Misery. And instantly what I love about that character is that you really get a sense of the relationship between her and, and Bill in that you know that she drives Bill mad. She's tactless, doesn't think, doesn't you know, doesn't think before she speaks. But there is genuine love there, as I think it is with all families. I think in every sitcom, it's always a thing about the in-law characters always being annoying. But I think everyone can relate to that to a certain extent. Yeah, it's one of those things. The reason it is such a common comedy trope is because it is a universal experience. Yeah. 
why do these jokes keep going? Well, because actually they're still true. Yeah. And, but the fact is she isn't played primarily as a mother-in-law. She's played primarily as Bill's mum. We don't see the relationship primarily through Ben's lens. We see it a couple of times, like in Misery, when he's got him tied to the bed and is feeding him the orange and lemon slices, which beautiful Stephen King homage, love it. But also, primarily, you have a much more interesting analysis, which is what makes the awful mother-in-law? How did we get here? And the fact that Bill eventually... I don't think Bill ever would describe herself as agreeing with what her mother did when she was a child, but she can also understand a bit more how she made the misstep she did. So, like, in one episode, you have her talking about smoking, and she goes... When I was six, I saw my mum with a cigarette. She said, of course she can. In fact, why don't you finish this one? And handed it to me there and then. And Rona's like, that's a really good way to stop a kid smoking. And she goes, a year later, I was the only seven-year-old in the brownies with a smoker's cough. And it's like, ooh. <laughs> At I some can't. point, that is, you're encouraging that as a parent. Seven-year-olds, even in those days, would not have been able to buy a pack a day and get away with it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's the element of we do learn a little bit about the past a little bit and a bit where Beck comes from. So I know in um, When the Children Are Asleep, Ben and Bill talk about their families as they were growing up, as we discussed in, in last week's episode. And one of the things Bill says, you know, I used to look at my mom exhausted from the cooking and cleaning and a job at the factory. And, you know, it was clearly a hard life. And Bet is also very much a wartime woman. I mean, if you see it in May Day, you know, she talks a lot about the Germans and, and all the things that went on in you know, the Anderson Celta Vera Lynn. But she has got that sort of keep calm and carry on attitude, as you see in You Only Live Twice, when she brings the family together and she goes, right, let's go in and, and get this sorted. And again, it's, and then there's that thing with the um, the story about the the identical twins who were bombed in the Odeon. She's very much lived through that era, has been damaged by it, but sees both the humour in it, even if it's dark humour, the nostalgia in it to a certain extent, which I think a lot of people have for the war, who, um, because it's so horrible, they probably have to find some humour and lightness in it, but also the, the stoicism of getting through difficult times. And I just think that's such a well-drawn character. I mean, if you look at something else, like I know I say it all the time, but the mother, the Zoe Wanamaker's mum in my family, for example, she was just a nasty woman who was just horrible to everybody. And it just wasn't as interesting. She wasn't as very much, she wasn't as multi-dimensional. No. And the other thing is, Bet is drawn, she's a very accurate portrayal of that generation. Yeah. She has got huge amounts of what we would now call trauma. And in those days, we called it war stories. And, you know, she had all that, but then she also had the rest of her life. Yes. And she lived a fairly standard working class life of her generation. And so at that time, particularly, there were a lot of women like her about. You know, I can remember 
she always reminded me of my father's mother who has since died but when we used to go around to nan's the smoke in that house because they both smoked like chimneys and that was still a thing you had grandparents who smoked hard had a ton of stories from the war you know that was just a very common experience at the time because that's what that generation was they were the generation of peak smoking and the fact that she is in the first couple of episodes where we see her portrayed you know usually with a fag in hand that is just how that character would have been at the time it's beautifully done and Liz Smith plays a character yes she definitely had plenty of examples to draw on from the world around her at that time but she does play it beautifully and the character is a solid portrayal of a real person yeah 100% she has the lightness in her as well she she does care about Bill and in that first episode love and marriage they have that scene on the sofa together and it's it's it, there is a warmth to them they don't have a sort of fixated view on each other which a lot of sitcoms do when it comes to adults and their older parents and i think another aspect that i love about the show is that we do learn a little bit more about bill's dad not masses amount but the episode when did you last see your father which i think is probably my favorite bet centered episode because as i think it was i think it was the times i came across the times preview for that episode from 98 which said you know we always have mother-in-law jokes in sitcoms but we don't always have father-in-law jokes and the joke in this is he's cryogenically frozen and he comes back and it's that idea that she missed her husband so much well it was his decision to be cryogenically frozen but she missed him so much she what she thought it, he, he would he would stay with her and that's really nice as well Yes, she is a character who has actually got some depth. In the first series, you know, we see her finally having an affair with the great what if, which yes. is almost kind of a reference to rearing butterflies, you could argue. Yeah. Um, but it is beautifully done. And of course, they're both having a fag in bed afterwards, which, oh boy, is that true to what life was in those days? And it is beautifully done, but it does round out the character quite nicely. It does remind you that actually she's not just Bill's mum. She is also an adult who has lived a life, made a ton of mistakes, regrets them, but has to carry on because that's what life is. Yeah, exactly. And she has the emotional side of her, but also the, the kind of fun side of her as well. I love Enter the Dragon when she meets Declan. And the and the, you know she's the the mother who probably didn't know much about discipline. You know she says to Declan, "Oh, you can have bees and chips. It's fine. Oh, he's only playing. Leave him alone." And I love it when she says, "Just do it over breakfast. Your homework in the morning." That's what I did because I don't know about you, but there's a generation, my grandparents' generation, who I agree. With. I love that generation. They are going very quickly, and I'm very sad about that. But when they were still sort of when I was younger and they were still in a sort of prime and stuff, you would hear these stories where they say, oh, we used to be very good when we were children. You know, everyone was so respectful. Total rubbish. When you really read about it, they were just as rebellious as any generation. They just got the cane at school. Yeah. And one of my 
favorite things is that actually in some ways previous generations were actually worse behaved yes. it's just that they'll lie about it so um in the book railway adventure by ltc rolt which is about the start of the Tallinn railway in wales in the 1950s there is a whole section where he is moaning about how awful the children of today are and they've brought knives that are vandalizing the trains with them and they are horribly behaved and he notes like the worst one was a girl's school they were just awful and doesn't go into further detail you know that is the era when the Centrinians films came out. Yeah. You know, actually, historically, children have always been badly behaved and they've always done terrible things. You know, you can read things from the 1960s where they were complaining about children throwing stones off bridges at trains, which was then regarded as a widespread problem and it would be nice if something was done about it. Nowadays, a single incident like that makes the news, but we don't get that perspective. No, because actually, this is a definite controversial statement, but I would argue on the whole, children now are better behaved than they used to be. Because actually, parents have some experience now. And also, we are much more reflective. And we will think about what did my parents do that was a terrible thing. And Bill it comes back to this, the show being ahead of its time. Bill has that analysis of her mother's parenting. She yeah. can see her mother made big mistakes and she has gone out of her way not to do them for her children. But at the same time, she's still her mum and she still slips into daughter mode. Like when she is cleaning up the house and Jenny goes, you'd think the Queen was coming here. Well, she'd be less fussy. Yes. Everyone has had a moment where their mum is coming to view their house for the first time and you're just like I am about to be criticised like uh, I don't know if you've seen it um, the American show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend the mother character in that it's a musical TV show and she has a whole entrance song this character of the mother called where's the bathroom which consists of her criticizing everything about her daughter's new house in song a very rapid fire song it is beautifully done highly recommend but it does speak to that universal truth that your parents will come into your house and criticize everything yeah and the flip side is you could do that back yeah you don't even though you've done the analysis and you've got the dirt there just sitting in a little file in your brain ready to go and be like hey remember that time when i was a seven-year-old with a chain smoking problem <laughs> or remember that time you had my father's body frozen and instead told me it was a bunch of ashes that i scattered you know she yeah. could absolutely pull up bet on things but she doesn't because you don't do that to your parents no, no matter what they are they are your parents you do show them respect no matter what they're like. And it's that relationship that is so beautifully portrayed. Yeah. And the other thing I like is that we do get similar vibes of that with Auntie Pearl. Yes. Even before yeah. we discover she is Rona's mother, we do get that very similar attitude. Auntie Pearl will come in and criticise Rona. She will 
be awkward and difficult and infuriating as we see at the wedding when she's tearing a strip off the flower delivery boy, which, yes, that is every mother of the bride ever in the eyes of wedding staff. Yeah. But equally, the other thing I love particularly about the relationship between the two characters is that it develops in its own right. Yes. And we have this lovely offstage thing where clearly because their daughters are friends, they have ended up becoming really good friends. Yeah. It's also interesting that Rona continues to refer to Auntie Pearl even after the big reveal. Yeah. I always think that's a nice little touch of the fact that actually if you've called someone something for 40 odd years, you're probably going to carry on calling them that. Yeah. But equally, they're of the same generation. They are similar. They do actually have a lot in common. And so we do see them becoming friends, which oh, yeah. does happen. I love those conversations in the hotel room, Babes in the Woods, when they're watching TV in Relaxevu and then watching TV again in Mayday. They are just like two old women, old, two old biddies, as I think my dad would say. Two old biddies having a chin wag. It's 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 so cleverly done, and you do sense that, in a way, you can see that Pearl would have been Rona's real mum, because they have that sort of they are so similar, but then it is that kind of um, thing between Bet and Pearl. They're the Bill and Rona of their generation. Yeah, and one of the other things I like is that they are actually drawn as adults who do exist in their own right. Yes. Like both of them, there are references to them having had a sex life, which, okay, let's be honest, few moments in your life would be more horrifying than walking in on your mother having sex with somebody. Like that is a stock image of what's the most horrifying thing you can think of. And it does happen to Bill, but it also reflects the awkward truth which often is glossed over that your parents are people too yeah and they apply it through the generations and so like in the episode the christmas episode with the computer at one point they are watching the dirty film with 3d glasses on and it's like oh that's right so like um to come back to my grandmother again the late one um i remember it in her final illness, she was in the hospital and was still flirting with the doctors. And I was like, I'm proud of you. (laughs) The fact that you have remained yourself and been yourself consistently is actually quite impressive. I mean, this was a woman who, the night of the big 53 floods, managed to flirt enough that she got a man to carry her all the way home without having to ruin her new tights. That was the sole reason she flirted with this man. She didn't want her new tights ruined. Turned on the charm enough, got dropped off at home, and then was like, bye. <laughs> Just went in the house. Amazing. <laughs> Love it. And the thing is, we often think of older generations as old, but they were young once too. And it's one of those things of growing up where you do begin to realise your parents were young and stupid once. Your grandparents were young and stupid once. One day you will be in their position. And it's a quote I was told recently of at some point you realize that the room you've been looking for your whole life with the grown ups in it is empty because you're meant to be in it. Yes. And it's terrifying when you reach that age and you're like, 
Huh. Grown-ups don't have the answers because I'm one and I don't. Well, that's every idea I had as a child ruined. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And I think what I like about Pearl, she did buy that video for Rona. Yeah. She knows what Rona's like, but doesn't mind. And she knows, and I'm, you know, she'll know that she's her mother and she's very cool about it. I, I like that. I think that's really cool. Well, exactly. I mean, you do get a sense that they are similar people and... Yeah. The fact that their sole reaction to when the gorgeous American servicemen come in is, oh, it's very realistic, isn't it? Yes. That is a beautiful moment and the with other both one, of them. And the other one I was thinking of, you know, um, one of Rona's big um, t- phrases is, um, oh, bow in a jockstrap. Yeah. Pearl says it as well when she runs away from, when, when Rona leaves the altar. Yeah. So that's an early sign of, of their links i will just say so when i was a child i can genuinely remember adopting that phrase (laughs) as a thing not understanding the horror of adults around me because obviously (sighs) children don't and now i have sort of come full circle and i still i don't understand why it's horrifying again i've seen a lot of bums in jock straps and mm, i've generally found that a pretty agreeable thing i don't see why it became a phrase for Rona, but clearly it wasn't doing it for her. So, <laughs> well, I think it's um, it just is a good example of the fact that they both share similar outlooks and similar phrases and stuff, which is what parents and kids can be like sometimes. Oh, definitely, and you know, the difference between Pearl and Rona in some respects is that Rona had access to contraception, Pearl didn't. Exactly, no, you're very right there. And of course, we can't discuss the the sort of older characters in this show without Aunt Belle, which is Bet's twin sister and Bill's aunt. And it's she's a really interesting character. She only comes into it twice, but you really can tell the difference in the characters. So, and it does go to the idea of twins being vastly different. So, Bet is very um, she's just she's kind of a bit more sort of classy. She's a bit like Mrs. Grimes in that respect, and then. Belle is, you know, in a tower block and probably doesn't have much money, struggles, doesn't have many visitors and is a bit more eccentric, I'd say. I would say it's almost the two ways of being old. You can either resolve you're going to have your best life when you're old, which, to be fair, Bet is in many respects living her best life. She is thoroughly enjoying herself. Yes, she's moaning 90% of the time, but she's quite content when she moans. And I have great sympathy with that. I am one of those people for whom a good moan is deeply a sign that I am actually quite content. Whereas with Aunt Belle, she is leaning very much into the I'm old, everything sucks, woe is me. Mm. You know, like when we have the episode with them all stood on the ledge she does talk about how well they'll put you in a home and she's really leaning into this old lady trope yeah and similarly with the episode where she's locked herself in you know you've got the pile of meals on wheels food the thing is that she's not that frail 
if you can get out on a ledge to feed the pigeons, you could probably actually go down the shops, not to put too fine a point on it. But she has lent into a niche that society then more than now was willing to give people who are old that you're a poor, miserable creature. Life is going to suck for you until you die. And now there is obviously much more rebellion against that. And also we've realised we really can't just shunt all the old people off into tower blocks and wait for them to die because actually we do need their contributions to society and the economy. Whereas at that time, it was still very much a thing. Old people were poor, miserable creatures. You know, pensioners were always talked about in the sort of tones you spoke of the impoverished relatives. Yeah. And there was tons of, like, cheap stuff for pensioners. Why? Because pensioners were poor. And it was... Again, it's well drawn to what society was at the time, but it also reminds you of how much things have changed. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it, in showing the differences even just in one family between Bet, who is mar- was married, Belle, I don't know, we don't know much about her past, but the fact that there's that conflict between the two of them in Secret Diary of David Porter when you realise mm. Belle didn't go to Bet's husband's funeral... Um, it's you know it's it's got that sort of sibling tension and stuff which I like and it's good that we only ever see them together and then in Vertigo uh, see them together once and then Vertigo it's just Belle and it's a storyline that we wouldn't have been able to do with any other character not with Beth certainly not just with her home situation but her personality she wouldn't do that yeah exactly and I think it also reflects a lot of it's a very true to family dynamics thing where you will have people who start off the same and do different things with the life they are given. Yeah. You know, they got married, moved out of London and yeah, her life was hard, but it was what she wanted it to be. Yeah. Whereas Aunt Belle, you kind of get the feeling life happened to her. Yes. And because of that, you know, she realistically probably doesn't live too far away from where she was born yeah she hasn't seized what opportunities did come her way instead she has quite happily got herself into a role that was easy to step into and it's been miserable and she clearly isn't happy but she sees herself as life's victim and she is happiest when she feels like she's won a tiny victory over the great monster that is life. Yeah. Whereas Bet very much sees problems as, well, yes, this thing has happened, but we can't let it beat us. And it is a really interesting contrast because it's the two core attitudes to life. Yeah. Almost. Two sides of the same coin. Up. And I will admit that, it does also, I think, reflect one of the uncomfortable truths of particularly working class, but all of society, that some people want to make their lives better and do it. And others want to be life's victim and will sink into 
the most depressing life that they could have had because that's what they expected from life because life sucks. Mm. And you do find a lot of these very bitter people in society who, whatever life has done to them, they had a ton of chances to live a different life, but they didn't take them. Yeah. And now they hate the world. They hate everyone. I mean, like she does at one point literally threaten to shove a firework up a social worker. This is not somebody whose view of the world is roses and happiness. No. And I think it is a really good portrayal. And also the fact that Liz Smith plays both which is one of those lovely, it's often done in television, but it's always fun when they do it well. Yeah. And I do genuinely love how just with, you know, different outfits, change the makeup, change the hair, completely different type of person. Totally. It's, it's definitely very well done. And I think it's much better done than those instances where they do near identical twins and they're sort of shown mirroring each other it's a, yeah. it's much better when there's a contrast i think when they're going to do that trope something di- they look different and it's and then same with siblings in general even if you've got a few years between siblings there will always be look there will be differences um so you're i think that the twin stuff does work really well with the acting and the look of, of liz smith so we go on now to auntie tina who i think said probably the most interesting of developments it feels like every episode she comes in is a development of her story and character so we meet her in saturday night and sunday morning as we mentioned last week it's very much an episode that displays the different type of women in, in a family you've got bill who's the working mum, tina who says you know there's men unemployed it should be a woman's place in the home as she says apparently in the bible and it's not by the way just to clarify oh it's not and i and i with your job i i can i I know you'll know that so so thanks for clarifying that um but i like that because she in the first episode you really feel like she's in this little bubble and they're similar in one night in bangkok you know she's she's very much got her husband got her home and she's very contented and in a routine and thinks it'll last forever and it goes to show when people are in that they don't ever expect it to change. Oh, definitely. And I think one of the interesting things is she poses the question of, what do you do when you had your perfect life and lose it? Yes. Because in the first two appearances of Tina, she is living her best life. And the things that come into it to disturb it are from undesirable relatives and I think a lot of families there is the relative with that vibe either they are the disaster relative that brings chaos or they are the one who is a bit ashamed of where they've come from and is quite glad to keep their family at a distance and every time after the first episode that we see Tina she condescends to see the porters despite the fact that actually her life is worsening as their life is improving. Yes. But she never cottons onto that. She is still very much clinging to an identity that actually she's already lost by the time that she is divorced. At that point, she should have found a 
bigger life for herself. She should have done things. But no, even the income she has managed to get for herself is via a very stereotypical housewife thing, selling, you know, plasticware from home. That is such a thing that very housewifey women do in caricatures. So, of course, Tina does it. And similarly, when she's come to visit Bill in, I think it's the Fortuosity episode, and she's talking about, no, it's, I can't remember which episode it is off the top of my head, but I remember this conversation where she's talking about the golf club and she's going on about, well, the men don't let us come in on certain days and in only in certain shoes as our heels ruin the parquet flooring. You know, she still sounds like Margot Ledbetter from a previous era and she is clinging desperately to this image of the suburban housewife. She's actually not. She's a divorcee. She is a single parent. But rather than deal with that, accept that her life has changed, she retreats into a sort of daydream. Yeah. And, yeah. And as the series progresses, even when she should have learnt some lessons, she never does. She is in the last episode, and I do kind of love, obviously I'm very sad the series ended when it did, but the fact that the last scene we have clearly hints that Tina is about to be set upon by an angry mob. There is a large part of you that feels like, finally, she's getting what's coming to her. Because she has been this agent of rudeness and condescension and she is just a horrible person and it's like you don't feel bad for her husband when he leaves her you know we don't see him referenced again really apart from the odd reference to the fact that she's divorced but like even though he's not a sympathetic character when we do see him You're also like, of course, that type of man has an affair and goes off. He's living the life that you would expect him to. And Tina had a choice. She could react to it by bettering herself, making something more of her life. And she chose the opposite. And it's like late in later episodes, she's still living in the same house. She is still very much Tina with the funny voice and the silly clothes as she describes herself at one point and even in the last episode you know she turns up she's in a fur coat and a floral dress which at that time you know we've already had an episode with a whole plot around fur being bad but women like Tina who aren't really in the present it instantly shows that she is dated and living a past life that doesn't exist anymore and she's still trying to play oh i'm just a silly little woman but nobody's buying it anymore and she deserves what she gets in the final episode i think because the problems she brings are her own fault yeah and she pretends they're not 
So like, yes, the fish fingers is a minor example in the grand scheme of things. But equally, if you're so ditzy that you can't tell, oh, my fur coat has got rotting fish in it. I'm sorry, you you deserve the angry mob, 100%. Oh, yeah, she definitely deserves it in that, definitely. But I do have to say, in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, I do think that Sandra Dickinson plays it well, in that she is very hurt and upset. And I do like the development in that episode initially in terms of she sort of says to Bill, you know, I wish I was more like you and and look, you've got everyone all around you. I've wasted my life. But as you say, she can't, doesn't doesn't expand on that further. And doing, you know, doing what Bill's doing potentially. Um, I like the fact that as a character, she isn't, you know, any other sitcom, going back to what I always say, in another sitcom, she'd have just been static, said the same throughout the series. She'd have still been with Brian. You might not have seen him all the time, but she'd be doing, you know, saying the same things. But she is sort of developed a little bit more. And I think it is showing a character. There is a, a tragic element to it, even though she isn't a nice person and does ultimately get what she deserves. But I think that it was interesting to see her development and given a bit of meaty um, material in that episode that she is devastated when he goes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that episode is a beautiful contrast between Bill, who life crapped on and she made something out of the crap. Whereas Tina leaned into being a poor woman whose husband cheated on her and left her. Yeah. She had the example in front of her that just because things go wrong for you doesn't mean you have to make your life worse. Yeah. And she ignores it completely. And Bill, I think Bill understands Tina quite well in that she knows that Tina is very small and sees herself as a tiny little china doll that will break at the slightest thing. And so she does try to shield her in that episode because if Brian's having an affair and comes back, Tina doesn't need to know that. Yeah. And realistically, there are a lot of people who, when their other half plays away, the best thing is for them to never be told. Yeah. Because they haven't got the emotional capability to handle with it and deal with it one way or t'other and realistically they are much better off being politely lied to yeah and it's an awkward truth because of course in society we value truth but actually there are some people who it's probably better to lie to and tina is a good example because if she hadn't found out And of course, we don't find out the full details of the marriage breakdown, but it's entirely likely that somebody like Tina would have gone down the classic route of the ultimatum. It's me or her. And he goes, well, her then. Bye. And of course, that's not the choice that you're you were expecting them to make. And you've now got yourself in a situation you fully expected to go the other way. Yeah. And that kind of person often makes that mistake. 
but also I do constantly get Bill's fury and frustration with Tina because she is everything Bill is rebelling against and I think in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown when she is just having the sort of flashes from Psycho of like eating Tina around the head and I'm like get where you're coming from 100% and in the deep when she's putting soil in the and, and really horrible stuff in the cup of tea yeah exactly she wants that woman out of there she does not like this person and I go on sorry I think she does play a character who gets on your nerves she is well played yeah your sympathy is not with Tina who is being served a cup of mud your sympathy is with Bill who wants her out of the house yes well, it's even it's even like when you say about her being ditzy when she forgets about the insurance thing she gets out and then gets some money for the cruise in two years on for the master she's just clear she's clean doesn't know what to do and she's in a situation where she has to do everything for herself um but it's an interesting development over her over her it's not what you expect because i think if mm. she did become like bill that's an obvious sort of character arc but i think you're right in terms of some people in life don't necessarily pursue the things that they could do um they just go down the safe route oh definitely and i think one of the interesting things with tina is that she does get herself into these scrapes yes so like with the episode on the boat that entire thing is actually kind of her fault yes because she literally went to her brother because she wanted and I've got to be honest, there is a part of me that reads that as she quite liked the idea of being a glamorous blonde turning up in their car. Yeah. You know, make an entrance on the ship, be a bit of a somebody. Who's that lady? And of course it all goes wrong. But then, you know, she's in the situation with the guy who's chatting her up. And sorry, zero sympathy there. If you can't get rid of a man you're not interested in, yeah. in that because you know he's not violent he's not dangerous he's just trying it on and she lets him she doesn't actually have the nerve to say no get lost i'm not interested because she's quite enjoying it yeah attention she she is enjoying the flirtation she enjoys being the center of a man's attentions even when she's not interested in the guy and okay, I'm the last person on earth who should ever criticise this, but she's enjoying the being flirted with so much that she's ignoring the fact that she's not into this guy. Yes. Yeah. She's just liking the fact that someone's giving her attention for once when she hasn't had it for so long. Um, Yeah. Well, she says she hasn't had it in so long. I think she is probably just a very needy person who is always you know, flirting her way through life. Yeah, I think you're right. She's definitely a character who wouldn't, um, probably wouldn't amount to very much in the end, but just continues as best she can. Survive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think she will, unless she does something truly stupid, like making Bill spend the millennium hiding behind the couch. If she doesn't do something that stupid, Like, she will carry on going through life and, you know, as time goes on, looks fade, you have to flirt a bit harder, you know, if all you've ever traded on is your looks, 
that trick becomes harder to do the older you get. Mm. And she will eventually discover that. And can you be the most glamorous granny in the nursing home? Yes, you can. Doesn't get you a lot. If you're in Joan Collins, yes. Well, exactly. But then let's face it, Tina will never be Joan Collins. She will be the bad drag bar tribute act to Joan Collins. <laughs> I like that. That's that's a funny, that's a funny image I can think of as <laughs> yeah. I like that. Joan of Arc Collins. Um, and so we move on now to Jake Klinger. It's only three episodes. And I call it the Jake Klinger trilogy. Yeah. And I just think it's an interesting concept that it would be inevitable that Ben has some kind of plumber rivalry, which is probably realistic. There's probably that sort of goes on. But because he is the point four, it has to be almost childish. You know, and Bill's like, I don't care who started it. If whether it's stealing a job, faking death, and I like the element of Jake being um, almost a geek before geek culture was a thing. Every episode he's in something else. And it's just interesting to have that kind of basis for their rivalry. Oh, definitely. Yes, there is professional rivalry there. And that's a fact of business life. But the thing is, they're really just jealous of each other because each has things the other wants yeah exactly because it's clear that ben if you let him would actually lean into his own nerd cultures yeah he would you know at one point he literally buys the car from thunderbirds clearly he and jake are very similar people but jake has leaned into living his best nerd life and ben has leaned into living his best husband life yes and so they are each looking at the other and wishing they had what the other had, which is a great basis for a really good rivalry because they are both jealous of each other. And I like the fact that it's Ben who usually um, starts the fights and then Jake takes it one step further. So you have him dying, in inverted commas, then taking Ben to Port Marion for a prisoner spoof. And then Mamu too much. It's that idea of them going to go into this sort of underground Illuminati Brotherhood of the Plungers group. And they both want to be in it. And it's just, it is, it is that kind of idea of when Jake comes in, you know it's gonna be more Ben-centered episode. And it's always gonna be showing him at his most childish. Oh, definitely. They bring out the worst in each other, but equally they are both stubborn and proud enough that they're not backing down. No. They will always push it that much further. So, like, faking your own death just to get one over your rival is a level of revenge plotting that even the most vicious of us, we don't get that far. Do you know what I mean? No. Like, I have known some very revenge-driven people. I've never yet been to a fake funeral. <laughs> and to go to those extremes either has to be motivated by a deep, visceral Count of Monte Cristo-style hatred or a desire for one-upmanship that gets out of hand. And it's much funnier when it's the desire for one-upmanship that gets out of hand. You know, the fact that in the Prisoner episode, he has gone to all these extremes, including what is, you know, kidnap. Um, Yeah. It's 
that's not born out of Jake Klinger is insanely evil. You know, he's not like a supervillain. He's just that guy who always takes things too far. But so does Ben. And that's why they work together as a comic duo, because if one of them took things too far and the other didn't, it doesn't become funny. It becomes scary because, you know, they would both do that to each other. And it's just a case of who gets the blows in first. And usually Jake is doing better at it than Ben. That's what makes it a really funny situation every time he shows up. And the fact in the Plungers episode, they do play into the fact that actually there is a mutual respect there. They sourced out together. Yeah, they... And this is quite typical, realistically. People who, you know, were probably at the same technical college, went into the same business in the same area. They have known each other professionally for years. And they probably were at one time fairly pally. But over the years, as their lives have diverged, they have come to see things in the other that they either despise or are jealous of, or both. And the whole arc plays out to that motif of, these are people who know each other well. And the thing is, there's no repercussions for any of the stuff they do. They clearly are still equals and friends enough that... Yes, there is the rivalry, but the thing is, none of the things they do ever actually has serious consequences. Faking your own death should have some kind of major consequences in normality. Kidnapping somebody, that you're going to do some prison time for that, being realistic. Or, you know, setting somebody up to make a complete fool of themselves. You know, there are no repercussions ever for either Jake or Ben. I mean, Ben urinating in his gas, in his petrol tank, that is actually a crime. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure there's actually a specific law about that. But it is also not paid back with actual consequences. It's paid back with childish consequences. Like, if it was revealed that they'd been at school together, you'd be like, yeah, that tracks. Exactly. That's the thing. And I think with Roger Lloyd Pack as well, he has that kind of familiar face uh, to come in as a guest star. As a, as a, it's not really stunt casting, but it, it works so well in it. And it's just always a nice thing to have him in it because um, he, he brings a lot of comedy gold to it. But then it's just always a great character because each series, you know, it's always going to be something different. And then to go on to the bank holiday specials and, 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 and Halloween specifically, Andrew wrote episodes with the idea of them potentially being shown around certain bank holidays. So you've got May Day set on a bank holiday and then the two Halloween episodes, Lady Vanishes and Carry On Screaming, which I think in, in both those cases, they ca- like Christmas specials, they really capture the seasons and the ideas well in terms of a bank holiday like when bill says we won't go anywhere it's bank holiday monday and halloween is trick-or-treating and stuff i like that idea that it's reflecting the british attitude towards certain annual bank holidays oh definitely and the thing is for working families bank holidays do 
often contain the sort of misery that Bill describes. You know, she's talking about, oh, we don't actually go anywhere. We have a massive fight about where to go and then get stuck in traffic. Well, that is actually how a bank holiday plays out for a sizable chunk of the population. As you can see, if you just look at your Google Maps on any bank holiday and see the giant traffic queues. Realistically, there's a ton of families there all having a miserable time. This is this is when they, this was a post Jambuster. Yes, and I do remember the era of these various gadgets and gizmos that were touted as you'll never be stuck in a traffic jam again because everyone had been in the hell that it's less bad now being in a traffic jam because now we've all got our phones you know you've got loads more options for entertainment if you're stuck in the car you know i mean listening to a podcast while you're driving is much better than having a choice of the three radio stations that you can get from your presets that play in this area you're driving through or the one tape that you've remembered to put in the car which you have listened to so many times you are literally ready to throw it under the car that was an experience and i'm thinking also um one fit in the grave does a uh, episode that is literally in the traffic jam yeah which has my favourite Mrs. Warboy's entrance of any of that sitcom's episodes, where halfway through she just literally climbs into the car that has been stuck in a traffic jam the whole episode. is beautiful. And again, it does reflect real life. And similarly, with the Halloween episodes, they do play to... I mean, now Halloween, I think, is a bit more established. At that time, Halloween was still very much seen as an American thing. And, like, I can remember hearing, even within the last 10 years, actually, people saying they wouldn't let their children go trick-or-treating because that's just door-to-door begging. (laughs) Like, it is not as accepted a thing in this country as it is in america and like every halloween you always see there's like the police are giving out free no trick or treaters here posters and all the rest of it it is very much viewed as something that if people are going to celebrate it they should know that most people aren't down for this yeah and at that time particularly halloween was a thing that yeah you were aware of it and if you were young you might go to a costume party but it was more an excuse for a costume party than the way it is in america a big thing i think it's the trick-or-treating that's kind of the the divisive thing in the uk in america they it's very very accepted as you say Mm. and i mean like i do love the bit where the children come trick-or-treating to the porter's house and the social worker gets the door and reveals her profession and the children run away screaming that is beautifully done but i think that also reflects the reality of the things that 
the kids who do go trick-or-treating, we all have an expectation that this isn't a terribly good idea, you know. You know, most of us, like, if children go trick-or-treating, there is usually a parent standing extremely close by, if not actually going door-to-door with them, because actually this isn't the greatest idea in the world and if the kids are really going to do it i'm keeping an eye on them because it's dangerous yeah i think now i think i know a lot of people who do who do go to the specific houses or they they plan in advance which ones they go to and let the people know and it's usually in their own neighborhood so it's a bit safer in america they should go here then everywhere yeah i know um next door this year we're actually doing a thing where you could sign up and say this house is trick-or-treater friendly which i don't know i'm that still seems to set off an alarm bell in my head. If I'm being brutally honest, I'm like, wait, so you're trying to lure children to your house. No, this is a giant red flag. I'm not okay with this. Um, Yeah, I don't think it will ever catch on to the extent it has in America because it just doesn't sit as well with our cultural norms. And, Also, it has got good competition in the form of Bonfire Night. And let's be honest, fireworks are a bit more fun. Yeah. And the thing is, I think with these with these episodes, the Halloween ones, that it's an excuse for a more horror themed idea. So uh, Andrew mentioned that they obviously they did a vampire for the first one, werewolf for the second one. If they'd done a third one, it could have been the mummy. But yeah. they he explore he incorporates this idea called the escalator principle, which is you have this ridiculous idea which on its own is very preposterous, but the way it goes up and up and up, you develop the characters into believing something and then it just goes crazy until they have to believe it. And it incorporates in in those two in a way that you know, had they done a third Halloween episode, it would have been something really outlandish, but with an explanation that is quite hard to believe is real, but you know that it's... um, it's within the realm of possibilities because of a number of misunderstandings, which I, I think is really clever. Yeah, no, I love the plot devices. And also the fact that like in the first Halloween episode with the vampire storyline, you have Christine literally referring back to Hammer Horror films, which are sort of the epitome of, you know, slightly cheesy, ridiculous horror films and have been great fodder for comedy over the years like you have um mel brooks young frankenstein for example which is a great send-up of those kind of films carry on screaming yep and dracula dead and loving it as well you know it is good comedy fodder yeah because they are intrinsically ridiculous and what i quite like is that 2.4 children keeps it within the realm of yeah but this is real life but what would happen if people were dumb enough and you know you do get this ridiculousness where the neighbor's surname does actually rearrange to dracula which is just a weird coincidence and but equally they're all in a heightened state and i think more of us than we would admit have got ourselves in a situation where we believe the stupid thing and rather than being sensible and pulling ourselves back we feed the stupid what's and we i was going to say something in terms of stupid but you go ahead like when you've leaned into it too far and now you're just like yeah but what if i've been right all along you know it's a sort of sunk cost fallacy thing where you're just like well 
I mean, I've gone this far with this truly ridiculous idea. If I'm right, we are quite far into chaos. Maybe I should carry on with it because if there really is a vampire next door, that's a problem, which yeah. it is a problem, particularly if your son is in with said vampire. If that, that was an actual thing, you'd be worried. But wow. instead... Yeah, instead, it's, actually, it's just a Draculagram. Yeah. And it is truly magnificent, the scene where they smash through the window and Bill is screaming, release my son, you demon from hell. And Rhoda is spraying the cat thing and Christine is holding this giant crucifix. And there's this little old lady sat in a slightly Victorian front room. And it's just like, ooh. <laughs> here's reality and boy do you look stupid well the funny thing about going back to the stupid thing is that i love that bit when they're about outside in the garden and then ben says do you think this is a good idea then when we broke into the, the other sides thinking they've been burgled just that was completely different we were just being stupid <laughs> but yeah, exactly but that's why i love it's the incorporation of something that we've seen previously now it's on the other side of the, the house the other neighbors on the other side and it's just brings that continuity and again something from series to series that you can go back to me and it's something new even more ridiculous yeah and it is played into very well and it also it's interesting that bill is like we're just being we were just being stupid and if actually the situation was reversed. If they had broken into the Grimes' house, that would 100% have been the right thing to do. Yeah, exactly. They do, yeah. Like, they, it's a classic thing of reacting to the previous incident rather than the current one. Yeah, definitely. And the final sort of vertical element of the series are the musical numbers. It's obviously it's a very creative show, considering it's been a domestic household more musical numbers than you would expect in your average comedy and i think the obvious thing we go to are the christmas specials that it became an annual thing an annual treat to have a musical number at the end or in the case of two years before the mass they reverse that they have one at the end but they have one at the beginning but the characters break out as the actors and say no the song comes at the end no no, no this year it's at the beginning I just love that. And I love the way they try it different every year. The first two are very Christmassy. The second, third one, relaxing, is a bit more kind of, it's Christmassy, but it's with a 60s style. Cowboys and cowgirls in the Porkies. And then it goes back to the Christmas, and but a bit more like a cruise ship sort of thing for the final one relating to the cruise ship. Yeah, it's nice because they do always tie in with what the whole episode has been. And so they are creatively justified in that respect. They're not purely for the sake of having a musical number yeah i mean like relaxevu is quite literally a reference to they've all fled the house and the chaos that has been wrought by going to france and that scene plays out in a spoof of a french chateau and that is quite nicely done i do like that i mean Relaxevu is probably my favourite of the Christmas episodes, not just for the gratuitous hot guys and speedos, although thank you. Um, everything about that episode is just glorious. And to end it with such a silly and I think it's probably the funniest of the musical numbers because 
as well as the actual musical number, you have this series of truly Adams Family esque misadventures happening to Ben in the Chateau, which is just so fun. Whereas in the others, there is always comedy, but it's not the central part. The song and the comedy are a bit more balanced. Whereas in Relaxé Vu, the song is almost incidental to the comedy in a way that, although actually the Cowboy Christmas one does play in quite nicely and has some good comic elements, it does occur to me that at that time there genuinely was a sort of Wild West theme park somewhere outside London. Like, I'm pretty sure that is where that was filmed. And it's mentioned in the Bank Holiday episode that David wants to go to the American Adventure. And I think that was part of that attraction, that there was like a Wild West village where you could go play at being in a Western. And it's nicely done because they are also dressing up and just playing at those characters for a little bit. And it is much more light and cheerful. But equally, some of the musical numbers within the main series, so like the whirling dervish number at Rona's Wedding, I love that scene so much for so many reasons. Um, But does it both serve the plot and give us some gratuitous jolly musical fun yes it does yeah because it gives and I her think, the moment to leave yeah and but i think that's one of the best things about the various musical numbers is they are fun they're still true to the characters they're still true to the setting but they are just also jolly good fun yeah and within the context of the main series you never feel like you always you never know what to expect it's always a surprise and I think that's what makes the show so interesting. You know it's going to happen at Christmas, but then you don't always know if it's in, in the main in the main series. But they are fun. I mean, the, the, the Blues Brothers and the Shirley Bassey scene are two of the fan favourites. Yeah, I mean, the Shirley Bassey sequence is a truly lovely piece of script writing because it is a, it's another example of kind of escalation of things progressively worsening but also if you were in the situation where you were in Shirley Bassey's lockup you probably would wouldn't you let's be honest have a go at trying on some of those rather grandiloquent costumes and having a little fool around to Big Spender or one of her other hits you know we are all entirely guilty of a little bit of envy of Bill and Rona finding themselves in a situation where they basically get to do ultimate dress-up karaoke. And I'm like, yeah, I would totally do the same. Whereas the Blues Brothers number, it's emotionally, I think, much more significant because, of course, that whole scene is played as David and Ben really pulling out all the stops for Jenny. Yeah. And so while it is a really good musical number, it's not primarily a comic number. The fact that they do it is intrinsically funny. But as well as that, it is also them putting on a really good performance to help Jenny. And it plays very differently because actually it does have 
the emotional impact of, wow, they have put in some serious effort just because Jenny was feeling depressed about trying to follow Charlene. Yeah. Whose Madonna act is kind of the epitome of 90s wannabe Madonna girl. And I do kind of love how much Jenny one-ups her. She doesn't look happy, does she, when Charlene sees her in the... No, and it's just, you're truly pleased for Jenny in that moment because you're like, ha, you have outdone the brassy article who's deliberately gone for the very slutty number, knowing the effect it will have. And I think what's really interesting, which I found out in Andrew's memories, is that for the final episode, the Millennium Experience, they very nearly did end it with a musical number. It was going to be a stereophonic sound by Cole Porter, but it was to do with the whole digital TV that they buy. And the decision was not to use it. And actually he says that there was a decision to that maybe to leave the musical numbers in the in, in the 20th century. And in a way, I quite like the the mysterious ending with Tina. I think it would I think if they'd finished that and then gone to a musical number, it would have probably ended on a bit of a weird note, I think. It would have been it would have ended on a, it would have ended on yeah, I would say it would still have been a 2.4 ending. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie. I thousand, thousand percent hope that there is at least like a dress rehearsal of that number because boy, do I want to see that. Love that song. Um, and seeing those guys doing a comedy version of it, boy, would that be amazing. Um, but because it ends the way it does, instead of ending on a purely light note it instead ends on a very nice chord that kind of combines comedy justice and the characters actually being true to themselves so and also i think realistically had there been further series it would have been far less important that the millennium episode ended as well as it did It would have had uh, potentially more, you know, just, mm. you know, don't you never know. But I think it's, it would have been interesting, though, because of the way we'd seen musical numbers from series two and it sort of culminate in something in the last one. I think it works perfectly fine now with the way with how it did end. Um, but, you know, it, it goes with, as we say, vertically from series to series. Well, thank you very much for that discussion, Thomas. It was a really fun to talk about all those elements. And again, I think like with the horizontals, it never feels like anything's repeated. There's a new thing every year. There's a new musical number. There's a new Bell episode. There's a new routine episode. But it's, it adds just something new so that when we look back over it all now, it's just so well put together and it's a nice continuous thing. What did you think overall? Oh, definitely. And I think it does reflect a lot of what good storytelling is because good storytelling in the television series format needs both types of plot and it needs them done well yeah and this is one of the reasons the series even though it is incredibly of its time it does still hold up entertaining that's the thing it has got the entertainment value to it i think definitely and it is well written and well acted enough that It has the timeless element that I think every comedy series is aiming for, but doesn't necessarily have. 
No, like, I completely agree. I think every comedy writer secretly would quite like a sort of dad's army level of success where it is just endlessly repeated and endlessly a part of the zeitgeist. And I think 2.4 Children deserves to be much closer to it than it is in a large part because actually it did capture a lot of things in a way that has rarely been attempted and I would personally argue has not been done as well no, elsewhere. I completely agree. I think it also captures the the the, um, the past nostalgia as well because I was just thinking about the musical numbers. It also captures the variety era, the Christmas sort of TV of the past, which is even more in the past now than it was even the 2.4 time. It was a show that was of its time, reflected the past and looked to the future in some ways as well. So I'm, I'm pleased that been able to look at the past of for 2.4 and and enjoy what it brought to the world thank you so much again thomas and where can people find you on social media uh so the main one if you're sort of a random person trying to engage with me would be twitter uh, at smudge thomas there is an instagram there is also a mastodon with the same handle in the event that twitter has collapsed by the time this episode comes out um if you find me on Facebook and randomly add me, maybe open with a little how you found me thing. So I'm not utterly terrified. Um, I do not have a public Facebook page, but also, you know, if you're that determined to yell at me, Twitter is probably the best forum for that. Thank you so much for joining me and, and have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And thank you to everyone who's listened. We will be back at a Christmas special. We'll be doing a new quiz episode, which will be a Christmas edition. And we have a new guest called Adam joining us. As ever, you can join us on Twitter at 2.4 Podcast, same username for Instagram, and the 2.4 Children DVD and streaming campaign on Facebook. Till, ne- till then, have a great December. We'll speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.